New nationwide poll shows how many people actually liked and disliked the Game of Thrones finale. Darren and I take questions from Twitter. A GOT writer reveals the one character who was supposed to survive and didn't, and more in our final Game of Thrones weekly podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Introducing the all-new Toyota RAV4 XSE Hybrid. With sport-tuned suspension, advanced hybrid technology, and relentless horsepower, it's ready to blow past the competition. And since the powerful RAV4 is a hybrid, it's leaving all expectations in its wake. RAV4 is a revolutionized style, and luxurious cabin can give you the comfort and confidence to take over. So if it's power you're after, RAV4 is XSE Hybrid's the answer. Visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details. You know, Darren, we've been doing these ad reads for two months now, and like two weeks ago, I got into a car accident in my little Subaru Forester, and I kept waiting for like a RAV4 to magically show up on my doorstep in, 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 in like a big bow like, like they have it in, in those commercials. It, it hasn't happened, and I just sort of feel like if I had dynamic torque vectoring, all-wheel drive, and multi-terrain select, the accident might not have happened in the first place. I think that's very true. All terrains, James. All terrains. Uh, and we are, we're going to be trying to cover all the terrains today. First of all, First of all, can I just say, James, I'm in a little bit of a like melancholy mood today. This is our last episode together. What a journey we've been on together. Thank you, James Hibbard, for taking me on this journey with you. This has been, you know, just so great to be able to do this each week. I'm now sad. I, I, I'm not so sad about losing Game of Thrones. I am sad about losing, waking up very early on Monday morning to blather towards you about television. So maybe we can do this again sometime. <laughs> I'm sad too. I mean, you have an, a, another podcast and another great podcast with Kristen Baldwin. It's called Best of Shows. Everyone can find it on on Apple Podcasts. But we'll do this again sometime. Like I said, James, very interested in that Westworld season three trailer. Very interested. Aaron Paul looks very moody in a Blade Runner-ish future. I'm down for that. I'm down for that. Fun fact, <laughs> I cover Westworld and I have not had time to watch the Westworld three <laughs> season three trailer yet, which I'm embarrassed to admit. But I mean, that's literally what... But uh, my, my my life has been like over these past uh, over this past time. So uh, so this poll this poll this poll is from Morning Consult uh, and sponsored by THR. So you know you know Morning Consult isn't like some fluffy online poll. They're like serious pollsters. They do like presidential polling and that sort of thing. So they don't really mess around. Their conclusion was over half of the people they asked sixty three percent said they liked the finale some or a lot while just over one-third, 34%, said they didn't like it. The poll is conducted among 200 adults, and and they say as a margin of error of plus or minus two percentage points, I don't know if, if you can really factor that for you know, feelings about a TV show, but, you know, sure. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, of the most negative category, uh, the no, I didn't like it at all category, that was 10%. Um, uh, fun fact that the percentage of people who use Twitter is like 15%. So, so I, I bet there's a lot of concentric circle overlap there. Um, now, a few thoughts on this. Um, 63% is very low for Thrones. It matches uh, roughly the Rotten Tomato score. I mean, IMDb fans usually rate their episodes in the high nines or tens. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that people were frustrated or disliking Thrones more than they ever had before. And that is... And that's a shame. I, I feel bad for fans who are disappointed. I feel bad for people who work in the show who wanted everybody to love it. Um, but I also think, as it happens in cases when the media takes cues from social media, the reason this poll became a story 
is because it's news. It's new. It's it's telling a different narrative than you saw everywhere else the past two weeks, which made it sound like everybody was hating the show, which which just wasn't true. And I think what you ha- what happens here is you have on social media the most engaged and passionate people about any given topic. And those people are important because they're often the spearhead for change. And they're also the people who like to read what we're putting out there. So we love our engaged fans. But what can also happen is that the easiest way, and you know, Darren and I, we both know this, the easiest way to get web traffic in the media is just to look at Twitter, see what people are, are upset about, do a post reflecting that anger, and those stories tend to do well. I mean, I've done those stories in the past. I'll do them again in the future. It's not wrong to report you know, what people are mad about on social media. But I do think the mistake that gets made is when we assume that what people are hating on social media also represents the average person. And it's been interesting too, James, I mean, even in the last few days, I'm sure you've experienced this on social media. Um, People had a lot of different thoughts about that finale. Uh, I've talked to people who said that they loved the finale. I've talked to people who said they totally hated the finale. Um, I mean, I kind of came down a little more on the negative side, but then I'd hear people who said they were super negative on it, and I'd be like, I don't agree with all of that stuff. Um, I think that that's interesting. I, you know, I, I think that in a sense, that's going to be more interesting in the long run as we look back on this show than even, I talked about this a little bit in our last episode, but um, anecdotally, it seems like for a lot of people, the Breaking Bad finale has become this kind of platonic ideal of what a finale should be. And honestly, I just think that finale compared to the show that preceded it is a little too clean and even like a little of a boring way to wrap up what had been a really complicated story. And I just think that, you know, we're already grappling with Thrones just in the last couple of days. um, You know, the stuff I think about the most from the finale is the stuff that is in a lot of ways the most inexplicable. Um, You know, I think that Daenerys Targaryen and her journey through the last few episodes love it or hate it or think the show didn't really own it. Um, There's just a lot of material to chew on there. And a lot of stuff that I think we're going to be really talking about for years to come, even if what we're saying in some cases is didn't like it or didn't like it for these reasons. So I, you know, I guess that it's weird because as someone who has not enjoyed this season that much and who did not enjoy the finale that much, I do think that the creators and all involved should feel like, you know, they created a big thing with this and they took a lot of like really interesting approaches. Um, You know, we'll get into some of the Twitter questions here, but I definitely think that, you know, it's interesting because as we were kind of emailing about this poll beforehand, it does just show that the kind of echo chamber effect of social media can just push everything to such an extreme in, in in both directions. I mean, you know, no one will ever love something more than fans and no one will ever hate something more than fans. And I think that, you know, that was maybe the big interesting thing about this season was I think coming into this last season, there were a lot of people who were so incredibly positive about Thrones. And I'd be intrigued to know, are some of those people now the ones who were super down on this last season? You know, it, it's interesting to kind of think about from that perspective because, you know, I mean, Fandom is such a tricky word to use, and I think we should make it clear we're talking about the extremes of fandom, but... You know, when you have stuff like that, I don't even want to talk about it, but like that that dumb petition that's circulating, you know, that to me is not a sign that everybody didn't like this last season. That just feels like it's the extremity that you were talking about, that, you know, this poll kind of seems to bring back moderation into the conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and Sophie Turner did a uh, comment to 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 the New York Times that uh, that she thought that petition calling for a remake of 
the uh, final season was, uh, did she say it was insulting? No, uh, no uh, uh, disrespectful to, to the fans. Um, and, and, and I posted that story and, 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 and some people were, were kind of, you know, giving me flack for just reporting what she said. And, and at one point I weighed in and I wrote, it's art. It's not up to you or me what it is. We can and should have opinions and preferably wildly differing opinions. But anybody who demands a piece of art to be changed, you know, should instead consider making their own. It, it makes me think of um, this building in Austin. We have this building in Austin that, that just went up. Largest residential tower west of the Mississippi. And it has this kind of jagged construction. Everyone calls it the Jenga Tower. Be, and the architect claimed in an interview he's never heard of Jenga and he's completely lying. But so, but for like months as this thing was going up, it's like you couldn't take a lift pool into downtown without people debating the tower and where they liked the tower, where they hated the tower. And the thing that I always thought is, man, I'm really glad I, I, I live in a city that has like something like that instead of another, you know, glass Bank of America building boring box, you know, because it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's whether you, you, you like it or you hate it, you know, you know, somebody really went for it and, and tried to create so- something new and take some risks and be original. Totally. And I mean, you know, it's hard because anything that I say about this, I think will be treated as somewhat disingenuous because my job is literally having opinions about things and writing about them. But, you know... One of the one interesting thing about this petition is uh, uh, somebody on Twitter, and I won't say their name because I didn't make it clear that I was going to uh, talk about it on the show. Um, but uh, basically, I sort of said this petition is really dumb, and this person responded, "Disagree. It gives those of us without the public forum or the wit to express an opinion. No one expects anything but headlines to come of it. But it makes me feel good to be heard once in the way critics, showrunners, and actors are heard every day. A chance to express a visible opinion. Uh, if it gives another showrunner or writer a second." thought before doing something stupid at a key point in their show it'll it'll be well worth it now a lot to take in there and i guess the short answer is i disagree entirely with all of that but the main thing i want to focus on it goes back to what you were just saying james this isn't a binary thing this creative process it's certainly not a binary thing creating a tv show and it's definitely not a binary thing creating the end to a long-running tv show you know Uh, it's not as if, like, it's clear in the room, oh, this is definitely a stupid thing, we shouldn't do this. Like, if anything, some of the most exciting things that happen in television storytelling can be the most out there and can be the most unlikely and can be the most challenging and surprising. In Game of Thrones at the end of season six... At a time when, like, I, I thought the show had been having, like, kind of a hard time juggling a lot of different tones and kind of a hard time moving past the material from the books. The end of that season, two of my favorite episodes ever, The Battle of the Bastards uh, and and then the, the, the follow-up, the episode where Cersei killed a lot of people in King's Landing. The Cersei moment was a big move for the show. It was a big, bold move past the books. It was a big kind of calling card saying that, like, you know, we're now moving into a decisive new era. And that was really exciting. And, I, you know, that didn't seem like an obvious move to make. Making Cersei the queen at that time didn't seem like an obvious move to make. You know, a lot of times, like, the most out there ideas, you want to kind of honor those and, and you want to support those, even if then as a critic you wind up saying, I didn't, think, I didn't think the execution was so good. I mean, again, this is where I know that everything I'm saying about this can only be taken as being somewhat disingenuous. But, you know, I just... 
it makes me feel sad when I see stuff like this circulating because it also just seems like a joke. Like it's like HBO's not gonna do another final season of this. Like, and also, also, by the way, people signing this petition, HBO has already working on like a million more Game of Thrones spinoffs for you, for this economy that you have created. HBO has taken money that could have been spent on making a new Deadwood or making a new Sopranos. They're developing new Game of Thrones spinoffs for you. You are being satiated. You are being catered to. So I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to make this a petition rant, James. We have a lot more to get into. But it, that 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 has been one extreme. And that's why I sort of think that re- returning to the moderation, returning to the feeling that there were a lot of different thoughts on this finale, that's kind of the move that I want to make here uh, in our in, in our final episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean for, for the most part, I, it's like I got a lot of texts from friends who are just very casual viewers who would never dream of tweeting about a TV show. They're just like, oh, you know, I don't see what the big deal is. I actually really like this season. And, and, but at the same time, I, at one point, you know, like two days after the fa- finale, I, I walked in into my gym and uh, I was walking in and I was so tired from, for, for, from the whole marathon of coverage and kind of wiped out. And my coach yells across like 30 people, the heads of 30 people across the gym. He's like, James. I'm just like, yeah. And he's like, Game of Thrones sucked. <laughs> I'm just like, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that was... That was my life. <laughs> we'll get into we'll get into some more of the uh, some more of the questions that people had uh, on Twitter later. But first of all, James, I do want to talk a bit about you teased this a little bit earlier in the week. Just when I thought all the secrets were out, you were like, "By the way, I'm also working on this like mysterious other uh, uh, other piece." So talk a little bit about character was supposed to uh, live to the end of this season and, and ultimately did not. Th- this is a fascinating little piece of uh, Game of Thrones lore that you've kind of uh, already done a lot of the report. One of the questions I asked the writers when I I was on set was, there any character who was originally going to survive that you decided to kill off? Or I think I asked it, phrased it as, is there any character whose fate changed in the writing process? And and there there was only one, and that was Ser Jorah Mormont. Um, When the writers began plotting out season eight, they hoped to have Ser Jorah keeping Jon Snow company at Castle Black in, in the show's final shot. Instead, they, of course, scripted him dying, uh, shielding Daenerys from uh, the Army of the Dead in episode three. And what writer Dave Hill said, he said, for a long time, they wanted Sir Jorah to be there at the wall at the end. The three coming out of the tunnel would be Jon, Jorah, and Tormund, um, you know, which was which is an echo of like the three, uh, you know, people like leaving uh, the, 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 the tunnel in the in the opening of the pilot. Um they said, but the amount of logic that they'd have to bend to get him up there to leave Danny's side, you know, there's just no way to do that easily, you know? Um, and they also thought that it was just, perhaps it's just a better ending for him to have given the noble death, defending the woman he loves. So yeah. And I'm not sure how it's one of those things where it's like, how would they, they have done that? Because, you know, Sir Jorah, how he would have reacted to, you know, her firebombing King's Landing and and John killing her. It's it's sort of tough. It's like if you add that complicated, I mean, it's sort of a delicious complication to add, but I don't see a way of adding that without adding like more screen time than they had available. I had to say, reading this, I was totally baffled by it for all the reasons that you said, because it just does not seem to fit it in any meaningful way. But the one thing I did find interesting was, you know, it, it, it seems to me that, when at least the showrunners and the writers conceived Danny's uh, fall from grace at the end and her kind of going on the, you know, 
climactic destructive spree around King's Landing, they'd largely conceived of it as a reaction to the fact that she felt alone in the world, that she had lost Jorah, that she had lost Bassande. So it's interesting to me to even conceive of what it would have been like without that if someone who had been sort of one of her most trusted uh, compatriots, except for that one time where he was off uh, getting cured of um, the grayscale and all that. Um, you know, that's that was confusing to me, but it was interesting to hear that they'd kind of conceived of that kind of bookending happening of him going north. It, frankly, makes about as much sense as Jon Snow going north at the end, but uh, yeah, that was an interesting sort of story, and I, I it, it's interesting like, to, just to see the, the slight variations that they'd, that they'd conceived for the final season. Okay, so we asked, you answered, we put out some calls on Twitter to see if anybody had any questions about this season. Boy, did they. Uh, listeners, we loved hearing from you all season, and uh, a lot of great stuff coming in this week, but here's a big topic of conversation that I saw, James. Uh, this comes from a Twitter user at ThomasG87. Uh, what was the point of the RNL theory built up so beautifully to only be completely irrelevant in the end? A lot of Twitter questions all pertaining to this, James, this feeling that the revelation of John being a Targaryen, um, did it actually matter at all? It didn't come into play in the kind of ultimate royalty. You're pumping your fist right now. I am, I, because I'm hit so me. raring to talk about this. Hit me, hit me. Because, because <laughs> I have strong feelings about that. It did matter. It just didn't matter in the way that we as fans hoped it would matter. Because when we heard that, we thought it was going to come down to either uh, uh, Daenerys killing John or John being crowned. Those are the sort of obvious paths out of that. So once again, I think, you know, with good writing, you always try to figure out, you know, how can we make something matter, but not pay it off in the way that you're already expecting it to be paid off. So what I would say is his claim caused Sansa to tell Tyrion to tell Varys. And that you know, chain of information and chain of events blew Danny's whole inner circle like wide open in the last like three episodes. So would Danny still have nuked King's Landing if she to definitively show she was boss and out of so much anger and fury if she wasn't stressed about John's claim, if Varys and Tyrion hadn't betrayed her? I mean, in, in our in our Amelia Clark interview, you know, she she sort of listed all these things as everyone them being a cut string, you know, as as she eloquently put it in in her meltdown. So so I think that 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 his parentage played a very key role in all the 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 series of dominoes that sort of you know fell in her mind in terms of what happened. Also also, John, I'm 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 starting to you know impersonate you also also john was the only character who who might have been able to get past drogon while considering killing daenerys so and he was certainly the only character who could have survived killing daenerys also there was a reference in the finale to blind maester aemon from the night's watch the targaryen who gave up his crown and i think the idea i think the reason they mentioned him was to to draw a little parallel in the mind of the of the viewer between John and Amon, another little full circle thing. So so it's it's like yeah, is it a direct sort of cause and effect that you know that that's super clear? No, but there are a lot of things built in there so that when people say his parentage didn't matter at all, um, I would disagree with that. The one confounding thing to me, and it all kind of comes back around to a complaint that I had about the finale, uh, is that 
you get to this point where you have all of the assembled lords and ladies of Westeros. And as we've already kind of discussed, there's just a little bit of geopolitical straightforwardness on a show that was never remotely straightforward in its, in its, in its complex portrayal of, of the powers on this country. First of all, you kind of have the like, make this guy a king. Okay, sure. Also, we're going to be independent. Okay, sure. Why is Dorne even here? Why would they ever want to come back into Westeros? All these questions. It, it is strange to me that on a season that tried to kind of bring up the idea of John's succession as being like this pivotal thing, um, it's interesting to me. I mean, again, you know, this all kind of goes back to Tyrion's big line about what the people really want is a good story. You know, again, we already I already mentioned this about Arya a little bit, but like, who has the way best story? It's the guy who's the literal heir to the Targaryen dynasty. So I, you know, but I, I do feel what you're saying, James, that there is this sort of like diagonal approach to why that was ultimately so important. Although, if we're talking in terms of realism here, that would have been like a multi-day summit, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> you know, it, it wouldn't have been like seven minutes of screen time. It, it would have been this thing that played out over days and days and lots of back-channel discussions and, you know, you know, and trying to get the Iron Islands on board. Yeah, that, which leads to another question, really. I don't know if you want to read some specific tweet, but in terms of the Dorne and the Iron Islands? Yeah, a um, uh, lot of people had questions about that. But before I get to that, James, I, I want to just close out this whole uh, Targaryen question. Uh because uh, the, the, the Twitter user uh, Maximilian Bucks, uh, whose uh, Twitter tag is at Tom underscore Andal, said, uh, you overheard the musical hint at future things in the final scene, the last Targaryen banned from his kingdom, playing Daenerys's theme in its darkest incarnation. There will be another young Targaryen, child of mad royalty, that will claim its birthright. The wheel survives. And what, what I believe the the theory put forward here is that John will now go north, uh, part of the Targaryen bloodline, not as pure blood as uh, as Danny was, but Targaryen blood still running in him. He'll go north, uh, potentially copulate with somebody up there, and then create a future Targaryen who may ultimately return south. Not sure if that was the intention, but I have to say that theory is a very fun one. Twitter user at Lucian Nikolai, I'm so apologize for uh, all these names that I can read even less well than I can say the name Dolorous Ed. Uh, why didn't Dorne and the Iron Islands call the Independence card soon after Sansa? And then at the moderate Matt said, second this, it makes sense for the Reach, Westerlands, Riverlands, Stormlands, and the Vale to be five kingdoms, but with hundreds of years of resistance and independence from these two, hard to believe they'd hear Sansa's spiel and not be like, yeah, me too, and then the a shrug emoji <laughs> but yeah i mean james what is your kind of I, I mean that is something that i really do struggle with that a show that has been so politically complicated it does kind of come down to the power of Tyrion's oratory to unify these kingdoms and then sansa's just like bye-bye guys like we're we're gonna be our own independent nation <laughs> i think it's a fair point because you know when you're watching that you sort of go like wait but why wouldn't you know they speak up too I guess what I would say there is the difference is Sansa Stark had an army at the gates to back up whatever she was pushing for, and the other kingdoms didn't. So arguably, she was the only character with leverage at that moment to do that. And second, she's obviously Bran's sister, and they probably thought, you know, oh, of course he's going to give preferential treatment toward her. But, you know, sure, 
yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a expanded version, the multi-day summit version of the Dragon Pit meeting where, where that was a, a huge point of contention and discussion. I just wonder in general, um, you know, one of the interesting things about this season is it, it was really an attempt to provide like an orderly ending to a story that has been chaotic kind of from the beginning. I mean, like um, Game yeah. of Thrones, you know, it begins in a time of relative peace. And because a lot of the focal characters don't remember Robert's Rebellion, you, you're, you're given the feeling that, you know, this is a country that has been stationary for a while. But, you know, as time moves on, you realize that actually... This country has been in a state of, you know, from the kind of Hundred Years War, War of the Roses perspective, this country has been in disarray for a very long time. I mean, like, Robert Baratheon was really only king for, like, under a couple of decades. And, you know, I I, I do wonder if um, one of the things that I really enjoy about George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood uh, prequel, the, the prequel that will ultimately have a sequel at some point, along with the other books that he's currently working on and the other projects that he's working on, um, you know... The, the, the nature of that story seems to make it clear that on some level, Westeros is never totally secure. And I wonder if, like, one complaint that a lot of people are having about this finale is it, it does feel very clean. It does feel very, like, we're getting the kingdoms all back together. Doran is falling into line. The Iron Islands are going to be kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the Navy now. Everybody is kind of all friends. And I, 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 I wonder if on some level, you know, was there a version of the story where you had the same feeling of catharsis, but it didn't feel as if, you know, two Starks are on the thrones now and things are all good. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I I do like your point about the fact that only one of these people has a big army. So that's definitely a pretty major powerful thing to play around with. Here's a question that uh, will kind of go deep into the thematics of this season. And uh, it was a few tweets, but I'm going to read them all because they're all pretty smart. Also from at the moderate Matt. Uh, so uh, the author, the writers, the showrunners and you guys are all white, but it would be nice to have a few minutes of honest discussion slash criticism about treatment of minorities, particularly this year. I'm moderate and usually not hung up on this stuff, but really took away from my enjoyment. Namely, A, constantly sending uh, the, uh, the arguably more skilled uh, Dothraki and Unsullied out first just to get slaughtered as a first wall for the white armies. B, the seemingly unnecessary beat of racist kids uh, looking at uh, Missande and Grey Worm. Uh, at a moment, supposed to be rooting for the people of Winterfell to survive, I was like, oh, well, damn, F these guys. Uh, C, Missande's death for really no reason. D, Grey Worm turning heel. E, Arya pretty much validating the notion that Danny shouldn't rule because she's not from here. Uh, did literally no one on staff or HBO think this could be a problem? I think most of these writers had at least some creative license to include these things or take them out or maybe just shows effects of not diverse team on show or network. Moderate Matt, a lot of stuff you're throwing out there, a lot of big thoughts, um, and I, I think we could theoretically do multiple podcasts just about this. And the one thing that I would just throw out there, James, is, um, you know, Fantasy in general, as it's become more and more mainstream, I think there's been a lot of light shown on the genre and, and a lot of things that even in some of the great works of fantasy um, have limitations. I mean, like stuff like in Lord of the Rings, or you have the whole thing about like the foreign invader men from the south coming up. Um, you know, that that is certainly something that I, as a Dumbo white kid growing up in the suburbs, didn't think about that much when I was growing up. And now that seems deeply uh, unsettling. Um, what's interesting with Thrones specifically 
specifically, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, is, um, you know, the Dothraki, when we meet them in season one, they are like straight up barbarians. I mean, murdering and raping and pillaging and all of this. Um, but over the course of that season through the character of Cal Drogo, you know, you do sort of gain more insight into them. It's kind of like everything else in Game of Thrones, right? Like, it's like, here's the version of this that is the kind of fantasy archetype thing and who's the noble hero and who's the, who are the barbarians and all of that. And just you see more sides of them and you see more of their culture. Similar with the Unsullied. I mean, like, that's kind of another fantasy archetype. These, like, you know, mega killers who are only made for killing and, you know, in the show's depiction, they're literally eunuchs. There's, there's nothing else in their life. And then over the course of time, you spend time with them their origin story on the show is literally someone saying hey like you're free now and so I I wonder if that's another just issue with this season is it just sort of feels like you know the Dothraki at this point there were no characters left to really focus on so you kind of only had this broad exterior view of them as barbarians going through a city and killing lots of white people and with the Unsullied you know the, the Grey Worm heel turn I see a lot of the intentions there. I, I do think the show was kind of attempting to give that character, um, you know, the depth of his awareness that he lost his loved one and how does he react to that. But it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff circulating through the show, and it's been interesting kind of seeing that become a, a big conversation topic this season. Like, like, were you kind of experiencing that and your kind of awareness of how the show was being talked about in, the, in this final season? Yeah, yeah. I think I've said a, a few times now, as did actress uh, uh, Natalie Emanuel in, in interviews that came out later that I thought Masande's storyline, if they had a scene with, with her and Danny, a scene with her and Cersei, you know, they, they could have had the same ending for her. And I think it would have felt like it wasn't, you know, you know, so focused on Danny's reaction, but but also about her character as well. Um you know, uh, as for the, like the northern kids reacting that way to Grey Worm and Masande, I actually asked writer Brian Cogman about that, and he said the point was that Danny's army was this invading foreign army, and the northerners were suspicious of them in general, and that on top of that, most northerners have perhaps never seen a person of color before. So, so, so Grey Worm and Masande were even more different and felt even more isolated. But I, I was actually surprised to see that as a point of crit criticism, just because I think critics actually largely praised those scenes for the show actually addressing race for once when 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 it's when it's normally ignored. Um, as for the armies, you know, I feel like the show is always kind of used the armies pretty disposably for whatever the plot required. I mean, like, you know, you also had not mentioned there that like the golden company art army, you know, re received all this fanfare coming in and then were wiped out and captain Strickland lasted two seconds, you know? So, you know, they've always been kind of there to, to, to propped up, you know, the needs of, of, of the more central characters. And I think the fact that the more central characters are so overwhelmingly white, I think that that's probably kind of, kind of the root of the issue, right? They, that God isn't racially, that Thrones isn't racially diverse. It's kind of a decade long criticism of, of the show. Um, and I do think that there's something that's something that the prequel series written by Jane Goldman is, is trying to address. We have a post titled, if you want to search for it, um, Game of Thrones prequel announces diverse full cast. The prequel has like three female leads, female showrunner, female director, and, and a lot of diversity in its cast. So I think that there's, you know, when HBO set off to do a prequel series, they sort of very much looked at that and wanted to change course in terms of, in terms of those issues. I think this is something that there will be books upon books written about because, you know, 
with this show and how it existed in this decade, it was one of the most popular things on television at a time when um, I just think that on the on the most mainstream level, the way in which we sort of watched entertainment like this, uh, in a way that I really like, it became a lot more complicated. And I think there's an awareness on a lot of people um, who didn't necessarily used to look at things this way of who is telling this story and, you know, how does that kind of affect how the story is told? You know, it's not necessarily the job of a creator of art or entertainment to think about, like, you know, what is the symbolic layer of this show. But, you know, one of the interesting things in general about Daenerys Targaryen as a character is there was a point in the show where you would have said, well, she is a woman who's been, like, horrifically abused throughout her life. She is now leading this sort of liberated army of people who were literally slaves in the corner of the map, very far from where this universe's white people live. And, you know, that was a big triumphal part of the show for a very long time. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this final season is, you know, it took Danny, a character who in a lot of ways had come to symbolize a lot of things outside of the show. Um, you know, it took her and had her do very bad things and had her follow do very bad things and I think that you know there's complexity there I I find myself wondering was the earlier stuff you know was that sort of a lie if this is where it wound up where you kind of have these characters who were gilded with a lot of heroism earlier now doing incredibly unheroic acts you know if you have these Dothraki savages which is basically what, what they are in the context of this episode marauding through fake London and, and, and killing lots of uh, you know fake English people you know that's a lot to handle, and you know, I, I I think it adds to the show's complexity that it did all that stuff. But I also understand people who feel like you know this this was the end, like you know, this was this is what it was building towards. Does that kind of devalue the, the earlier stuff? Daenerys was sincere. I, I I I think she was sincere about all of it, and and just kept going further and further, and those roots um, of her entitlement that were there from the very beginning, the sense of, you know, I have earned this or, or, or that I, I'm, I'm going to be the right person, but rather, you know, because of my birthright, this is mine and that I have an absolute right to rule and you have an, have an absolute responsibility to submit. That was always there. But it, she, but in terms of her methods of enforcing that, kept getting more and more and more consequential and 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 severe. My favorite story, as, as I think I said in the last podcast that I wrote all 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 season, was uh, was the final Amelia Clark story. Um, you know where where there's an ending quote. Uh, I believe in Daenerys, and that's actually our cover story for this week. Uh, and and you can, we have one issue with the the Starks in the cover, and the other issue with Amelia Clark on the cover. And you know that quote can mean a lot of things. And I think the way to read it wrong, which you know a few people have like kind of you know pushed back at, on Twitter about it, is oh you, you know you know you believe in in like a you know genocidal murderer. It's like no no. I mean is if when you read the story, it becomes clear that what Clark is talking about when she says that is is she believes in the positive qualities and heroic qualities and, and aspirational qualities of that character that uh, I, I think so many people you know admired and drew from, and you can still kind of admire those qualities and draw for, 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 from those qualities and also still accept that this is the turn that she made eventually. And, and how that affects kind of everyone around her and even like, you know, 
I mean, the the Grey Worm stuff in this last season, I think I struggled with it a little bit only because, um, you know, there is that aspect of him in the finale where he is just kind of like, he's he's now like the grump, basically. And I, I, I do wonder if, you know, as we're kind of getting into just broader conversations about the finale, you'd sort of mentioned uh, in our uh, previous conversation about it that like, you know, it's strange that he doesn't just kill Jon Snow. And it's also strange that he just kind of goes along with all of Tyrion's kind of suggestions at the end. And I, you know, I, I, I do feel all of that. I mean, this show for better or, or, or for worse, it ended up on the idea that like, Tyrion Lannister and the Starks were the main characters and like their actions in the finale and really mainly Tyrion's actions and Jon's actions are the most transformative for Westeros. And, you know, I, I, th- this all goes back to my larger struggle that like a show that seemed to be a lot more complicated than that in its middle run turned out to be kind of reducing to those two guys and their actions. And, you know, that's the stuff that we'll kind of continue to struggle with. Uh, a lot of twists and turns, James. You know what else has a lot of twists and turns? The all-new Toyota RAV4 Limited, which delivers advanced tech, refined style, available dynamic torque vectoring all-wheel drive, and multi-terrain select. It's prepared for pretty much anything in its path doesn't matter if you're going to the westerlands or the riverlands or dorne or essos or bravos or those other soses over on the east side you could go west of westeros in the all-new toyota rav4 limited uh, visit toyota.com rav4 for more details and james we're in the home stretch here james uh so a fellow by the name of George R. R. Martin, once upon a time, started writing a book series called A Song of Ice and Fire uh, that then became Game of Thrones. Still more to come with A Song of Ice and Fire. What's new with Mr. Martin, James? What's he been up to uh, during this very big week for the characters and, and the world that uh, he created? Well, I mean, he did react uh, sort of uh, to the finale. He he did a post on his blog noting that uh, is the ending the same as a show? And he's like, or different. And he's like, well, yes and no, and yes and no, and yes and no. And he's like, I'm working on a very different medium than David and Dan, uh, the showrunners never forget. They had six hours for this final season. I expect these last two books of mine will three fill 3000 manuscript pages by the time he's done. And he also, you know, ran down a list of all these kind of minor character characters that he's introduced um, that uh, viewers in the show never had a chance to meet uh, that, that he's also wrestling with. Though to me, it's like when I read that long list of characters like like Gene Poole and Penny and her pig and Lady Stoneheart, who I was trying to skip over because that's such a thing. Um, uh, uh, Arian Martell. Victorian Greyjoy and Sir Garland. Yes. And yes. It, it, it's like that to me, I, I can't help read that and think, but that's why you know, your book is delayed. You, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> he's introduced all these new storylines and he's tried to struggle to to figure out how to connect all this and to how to make it all pay off and how to make it all work. I mean, that's, and, you know, in his own, you know, interviews, you know, he's talked about how, how it's been this struggle to write the story that expands out and expands outward and expands outward. And then you try to turn the corner and start contracting the world back in. And he turned sort of started to turn that corner in, in the last book, um, uh, a, a dance with dragons for in, in 2011. 
and, and and that's been the struggle. And it's such an interesting dichotomy to have him with that struggle. And then you have Game of Thrones, the series, with the fan complaint that, and I feel like a lot of these things that we're talking about all come down to, well, if they had more episodes, they had more time, these are things they could have done. And the question is, is yes, but would, if they had done all those more things, would the show have been better? And that's something that we don't know. Clearly the showrunners think that no, the show wouldn't have been better had we stretched this out more, had we added more stuff in. So, you know, it's, it's all kind of a hypothetical. Uh, And what we do know is that George, you know, he's working on it. I always think that uh, on some level I approached this show from the perspective of someone who had read uh, the first four books before it debuted and then after season one, I, I, I read book five. That is one of the fastest uh, reads of a gigantic book that I've ever conducted. Um, the, the deeper in we get to George R. R. Martin's Westeros saga, the more it just seems to me as if, you know, he looks at every corner of that map of Westeros, which in the later books extends more into the kind of other continent. And it just seems as if he can zero in on a small town that has never been explored in the book yet. And he's just like, I want to do everything about that town. And, uh, you know, in book five, there's a character who I just love, who's very infamous among people who aren't so into that book, named Quentin Martell. And Quentin Martell is just like, you know, this complete flea on the side of the larger story and in book five he has his own supporting cast and his own kind of narrative arc and it is a narrative arc that is ultimately like almost hilariously pointless in the broader scope of things but that i i just find to be so evocative of this larger feeling of martin's that you know everyone in this world he just wants to focus it on them and you know is does that mean that like you know there's going to be a rapid conclusion in book 6 and book 7 i would guess not it really feels to me as if you know if there were some like machine mind version of george r r martin he, it would just keep on writing eternally you know every every story in every quarter of uh, of westeros and you know that sort of write up that, uh, that 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 we were talking about some of those characters i literally forget who they are like shave scave plate or or whatever it is i need to i i, I clearly need to uh, return and uh, reread the, the last couple of books but man when he mentioned lady stoneheart i was just kind like yeah that's right now we're getting back to the good stuff here <laughs> i don't think we've ever talked about lady stoneheart we're in division on that right because you're pro lady stoneheart i'm anti lady stoneheart can we, can we say who lady stoneheart is is that like a spoiler thing i or I, I, like... I think i mean it's it, it's a book spoiler if you haven't read um which everyone uh, should go a, read the book so, storm okay. of swords but i mean but I mean, uh yeah so so storm of swords which is i mean i i i, I would say incredible. like incredible incredible that book. is his best novel um, that, you know, is, that, that is that is the, is the most fun i have ever had reading a book i didn't want to end it was is an absolute blast it's, it's so addictive and you know even if you have seen the show i just think the way the the, the novel is just runaway train mentality is so fa- is so fascinating and so fabulous um that book uh, which features a lot of the biggest moments that played out on seasons three and season four of game yeah. of thrones you know showdown with the wildlings and uh you know two weddings where a lot of people die um it's just such an incredible series of like horrible things happening one after another it ends with 
again, sort of what I was talking about, about his, 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 I will zero in close up on every single person in this country. It ends with a chapter that's kind of told um, from the kind of closer up perspective of uh, one of Walder Frey's sons or nephews. I, I kind of forget um, what the family lineup is, but just, just like someone who was like there at the Red Wedding and he's kind of going off into the wilderness for, for, one, re- for one reason or another, yada, yada, yada. Um, he meets up with the Brotherhood Without Banners who you find out have a new leader now, and it's Caitlin Stark, brought back to life by the same red god energy that used to bring back Beric Dondarrion, who dies much earlier as a result of this. And, like, Lady Stoneheart, whose throat is cut open, who can't even properly talk anymore. It's just such a vision for me. This is my pitch for Mm -hmm. it. It's such a vision of something that gets to the core of what I love about the later books we have so far in the series, of how, like... Just these people who seem initially to be certainly on the good side, certainly whatever their faults, um, people that you were rooting for, how like in a very explicit way here they get turned into a monstrous version of themselves. I love that. What's your what's your take on on Lady Stoneheart though? Let's hear it. Break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> my take on it is that the Red Wedding is this incredible, powerful, probably one of the most powerful things that happen in the books. And it's so devastating. And there's something about Lady Stoneheart that walks it back a little bit. And that's what I don't like. I like in my entertainment for dead to be dead unless there's a really good reason. <laughs> you, know, you know, unless there's a really good reason to, to, to bring somebody back. And, and that's my frustration with like a lot of comic book and, and, and like Marvel stuff. You know, when it's like when, when, a sh- when something can't commit to, to a death. And that's one reason why... I, I loved uh, the Harry Potter franchise because one thing that J.K. Rowling really believes in is that no matter how much magic stuff happens, that when somebody dies, you know, you know, you know, they're they're gone. And yes, she invented the ghost in the first book, and so there's like these little shades of people that that used to be. But it's like you you know, she can't bring back Dumbledore. Harry can't bring back his parents. You know, once Sirius Black is gone, is go- he's he's gone. You know, there's 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 something that takes away from the dramatic tragedy of death when you have like rollbacks like that. So it's like occasionally, like I was down with Jon Snow's resurrection because that was such a cool death and that was such a incredibly well done resurrection. It obviously had a very, you know, you know, strong, you know, component to the whole Prince who was promised storyline. So to me that worked, but in general, I kind of like to stay away from it. So, 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 you know, Caitlin Starr coming back as like a zombie version of herself. You know, here's the thing. On the other hand, and here's my one caveat to that. We haven't seen how that storyline plays out. And if George R. R. Martin were sitting here with his beard and, and his hat, I think he'd just be looking at me like with lots of disapproval going, you haven't read the rest of that story. How can you say that, it's, that it doesn't work if you haven't read the rest of that story? And that is a completely accurate thing to say. I can't stand it when people, you know, you know slam something that's like partial and, and, and they're not, you know, sure of, of what it means yet. So I don't want to make the same mistake that, you know, I criticize being made, but my initial instinct when I got to that last, you know, epilogue in Storm of Swords was, ah, oh, damn it. 
that I mean, it was so great, and then that. I was like, oh, no, no, don't do that. Let me say one thing in your defense, uh, because speaking as someone who spends a lot of my time uh, analyzing and criticizing things that a lot of the creators feel are works in progress, I think your reaction totally makes sense. I, I get where people are coming from. I do think that, like, Lady Stoneheart also, to me, has come to symbolize what... I think was something missing from the later years of the show, which is just like the show with one obvious exception moved into this period where it's like, we have our heroes that we're rooting for and we have characters who are on the good side. And even like, like Davos Seaworth, I don't know why he was doing anything he was doing past season five except because like he was on the good side like what why does he who's so strongly allied with stannis wind up just becoming this floating authority figure between the starks and then into you know the new cabinet you know because he's a good guy and like you know in the books which admittedly have not gotten to that period in time yet there's just never that feeling and if anything there's a feeling of like wow a lot of the good people are not going to be good by the end of this and I guess in a sense I've talked myself into saying the reason why I like Lady Stoneheart is because she's like what happened with Daenerys Targaryen in the finale which I didn't like so much so you know a lot of complexity here James James uh, one other thing that I do want to get into because it's something that actually came up uh, on Monday when we were chatting with uh, our colleague Sarah Rodman about the show Uh, it also came up on Twitter, Twitter user E Thunderwood, uh, whose Twitter tag is at Crowo. Great names, everybody. Um, is Bran guileless or evil? His rep, harmless slash good. His actual behavior, destructive slash bad. He's every fool I dated in my 20s, swearing he's <laughs> honest while cheating on me with my best friend. Hashtag true, hashtag Game of Thrones, hashtag bad math, hashtag gaslighting. Um, That's the first time I've ever heard <laughs> Bran compared to somebody's ex-boyfriend. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, 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 this theory, which I'll kind of like broadly state here, is basically... A close-up analysis of what did Bran know, how much did he know, what was he actively doing, was there some element of chess mastering involved where he ultimately wanted to get himself on the throne? And James, this is all very, very fun to talk about, but for me, the linchpin of all of this is the last time you see Bran, he is saying paraphrasing here, I'm going to go off and try to find that dragon, which we interpreted to mean he's going to try to warg into and telepathically control that dragon, which, if I follow this correctly, would make him the most powerful royal in the history of Westeros. Like, he's not even riding a dragon now. He's going to literally be in a destructive... uh, Right. He'll have a dragon drone. And now we get into the kind of more confusing bits of him being a three-eyed raven. You know, one of the big pitches on Bran being king is, you know, he won't have an heir, so we're not going to have the situation of, like, someone crazy being on the throne. But, like... I think the previous three-eyed raven found a way to sort of be immortal, or at least it seemed like he was, like, older than he should have been. Um, Which, you know, again, dot, 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 phase two, phase three, not clear to me. Did Westeros just give itself an immortal dragon king? (laughs) Right, right. And I, I... I, here's the thing. I, I don't buy the theory, but I like it. I, I like it as, as kind of a mental exercise to to think about the finale and think about it 
as what if Bran saw all all this coming and had plotted this out and just to put himself on the throne, especially because there's that last shot of Bran as he's being wheeled out of the small council. And there's this kind of light moment where where they they do the salutation wrong and uh, somebody says, oh, you know, we'll work on that. And it's this kind of funny moment. And Bran has this like smile that no one can see as he's being wheeled out. And it's like, what if that's like an evil <laughs> smile? What, what, what if that's like, I have completely fooled them all. You know, you know the one thing that I, I would think in terms of if you want to try and make a reasoning for it, if you could see the future is that, well, maybe the other alternative, you know, Dr. Strange Avengers Endgame sort of outcomes that he saw were worse, right? Like, like if he hadn't done what he'd done, then if he hadn't played it the way he played it, uh, you know, there would have been an evil Daenerys on the throne and there would have been worse destruction, you know, worse death. Um, The other thought is just that obviously the the finale doesn't play it as if he's bad, as if we're going into this new dystopian, um, you know, o- evil overlord thing. So because the finale doesn't play it that way, my my feeling is that that's not what's in the text, so, mm-hmm. and there's no more text after this in terms of the show. So therefore, that's kind of inherently not right because that's not what we were, you know, you know, you know, straight presented in the straightforward manner. Yeah. But it's still fun to think about. I yeah. mean, as a person that, that that doesn't even like, you know, fan theories all that much, I, I like that one. Yeah. I like fan theories when they are stitching together, like, the text that we have, you know? Like, I get very nervous about stuff. Like, I mean, we didn't even really talk about this because I just didn't even care. But, like, all the stuff about <laughs> Bran being the Night King, like... You know, and again, people, theories are fun. You have theories. I'm not saying you can't have them. For me, it's less interesting when you're doing this kind of predictive gamesmanship sometimes where, like, it's fun to talk about that stuff and the crazier the better. But it's sometimes, I I worry sometimes that, like, as it gets crazy, it kind of gets in the way of, like, actively enjoying what the show is itself doing. Um, You know, classic example of this would be, I mean, Mad Men season six is not my favorite season of the show, but it's still very, very good. And there was just a lot of like fan theorizing that year about like, well, is Bob Benson a time traveler, which was just like dumb, but also like, you know, is Megan going to die? And it just, it all seems like, you know, I worry about that stuff when it becomes so predictive that it becomes a story unto itself for viewers. But we have the show to look at now. And I do think it's really fun to kind of pull out all these kind of evidence strands and see like, you know, to what extent is Brad, I mean, you know, what you kind of saying about like, um, you know, He's the Doctor Strange who's seen all these different futures, and he's just like, it's it's simple. Like this is the only future that works. Like I I have to make myself king. I know what's right. Like you know, it, it all becomes a little charmingly unsettling at that point. Um, just one more kind of uh, question from the Twitter audience out there. Again, thanks everybody for chatting with us all through the season. Uh, at Literate Truth whose name is Cameron Craig, says, uh, people tend to focus on what's missing from the books, i.e. what they wanted in the show. What are some changes the show made that you thought were good departures for one reason or another? I got my answer ready to go here, James, and its name is Euron Greyjoy. Um, (laughs) Euron Greyjoy is a character who becomes a major part of uh, books four and five in a way that, like... um, you know, I, I, I really do feel that uh, David Benioff and uh, D.B. Weiss, um, you know, 
they, with all sincerity, tried in their initial season with Euron to kind of get at what the character seems to be building towards. And I say seems because it's all very confusing to me. There have been a couple of chapters released from Winds of Winter from book six that tie in with Euron Greyjoy that seem to imply that he has a major, major role to play in what's to come uh, that goes way beyond what we saw in the show. And... I, I suspect that on some level, um, Benioff and Weiss either didn't totally get that, didn't feel like they were really nailing it in their depiction of it, or just kind of felt like we're down to the wire here. We have two more seasons to go. You know, there's characters we want to focus on. Um, and, and, you know, th there are dichotomies we want to establish, Night King versus uh, these people, Cersei versus these people. You know, it makes more sense for them in their perspective, maybe, to sort of just fold him into the Cersei side of things. But I just love how they let the actor, whose name I can always butcher a pillow A's back they just let him go wild with it and yeah I thought that was a fun flavor in the last couple of seasons. I know a lot of people feel like he was sort of a poochie on the show, that just this character who didn't really <laughs> fit in. But I just felt like at a time when a lot of the stuff on the series felt very dutiful and felt like, you know, endless callbacks to these things with other characters, it just seemed like they really were willfully doing their own thing with that character and even more so letting the actor do his own thing with that character. I agree. That, that, that was a great ad, and I thought it was great that, that his character and the actor both have kind of the same meta perspective of I'm just glad to be here. I'm just, I'm just happy that, <laughs> that, that, that I'm in th this party all of a sudden. Um, so it, it was this weird kind of meta thing with him and, yeah. you know, and, and he had a, and he, he brought a different, he brought a different tone and sensibility into, into the ensemble that, that I thought was valuable. You know, I also l like what they did, um, in terms of Theon's redemptive arc. Um, obviously, you know, Sansa being married off to Ramsay's hugely controversial, but in terms of Sansa's character, you know, in terms of, of, of how she evolved from this, this sort of naive, um, you know, you know, person who was always being manipulated into, into a, a, a manipulator herself, um, and end up queen in the North. I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a really good one too. Yeah. That does sort of feel as if, um, on the side of things where it comes down to the writers of this show, trying to end this story without necessarily, well, we, we don't know, but seemingly to me, mixing together some of the original intentions of Martin with the stuff that they were kind of doing on their own. Um, Sansa's kind of role and Sophie Turner's performance certainly stands out as something that was really, um, you know, just majorly a factor in what was new here. What, what did this show provide that the books haven't necessarily done yet? Um, James, we're coming down to the end here. This is it. This, this is, is it, it, isn't it? We're, we're saying goodbye and we're breaking up. This is so sad. I got a few things that I want to say, uh, and uh, I'll just say them now, and then you can say whatever stuff uh, uh, you want to say after that. First of all, big thanks to uh, our producer, Patrick Antonetti, who's been uh, working with us this season and doing a great job of making us sound even a little coherent. Guys, you have no idea how many you knows and how many stutters on my side, and you have no idea how many times the ad reads had to be started over again. So thank you, Patrick. A big thanks to our former producer, Christina Everett, who was so instrumental in putting this thing together. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our listeners for being out there and following us on this journey and sticking with us, even when there were some rants. No rants in this last episode. Maybe kind of a rant about the petition. I'm sorry about that. Ranting's no good. And really, let me just say thank you James Hibbard not just for 
bringing me along on this podcast. But also, thank you for, I believe, a little biased, obviously, um, I believe setting a new benchmark in the reporting of TV journalism with your work on Game of Thrones. Um, just uh, over this week, I was kind of sifting through a lot of the write-ups you've done over the years, remembering how, as crazy as it seemed this year, the effort you were putting in, you know, every Sunday night and Monday morning, just having these incredible conversations with the people involved in the making of the show, these incredible deep dives into the show, remembering that, like, you've been doing doing that since the beginning, basically. This is a true kind of corpus that you've built up, and I hope that everybody out there is aware of just how much effort went into all of it, even, um, you know, whether it was the interview you published, uh, the piece you did with Amelia Clark, um, which to me feels like a brilliant summation in a lot of ways. Um, everyone do check out this week's issue for a lot of other Game of Thrones stuff with you. But even, um, you know, that great interview from a couple weeks ago with uh, Conleth Hill, who played Varys, um, um, you know, that's the kind of interview that to me only comes from years and years of effort and years and years of time spent. And, um, you know, I just have to say that personally inspiring for me as a person who occasionally when we were doing this show, you know, I'd watch the show on Sunday, I'd kind of jot down some thoughts, go to sleep, be kind of like, ah, oh, man, you know, it's a bummer, I got to get up so early, got to record, like, you know, what am I going to say? I'd realize, like, Jesus, like, James, in the time that I've been complaining about this, has published a couple of things, has a few more things that are going to go up before we do this. Um, and I, I just think that as a writer and as someone who watches and enjoys pop culture, it was very inspiring for me, all of your hard work. And I, I hope that uh, I hope that everybody out there is giving you uh, that kind of thanks as well. Well, I, I'm I'm like almost speechless, uh, and which is not good for a podcast. But I, <laughs> I, I I would first echo your thanks to to Patrick and Christina for for making us sound uh, sound like our best selves, really. And uh, and also my thanks to you, Darren, for being the best podcast co-host that I could have <laughs> hoped for. You know, your 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 knowledge of the books is has has been great, and uh, you're you're so awesome at keeping things moving along. And um, and and pushing me in terms of uh, questions and so forth, and just the whole experience of doing this. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's a different type of interaction with uh, with the people who consume our, our stuff than 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 writing and, and reporting. It's like when you write and report, you get kind of one reaction, and when you do something like this, you get a much more uh, personal reaction you you get a much more personal connection with uh with the people that are reading it and and for me personally um this has podcast has been a big big deal we didn't start this until like i think what was it season six i never did a podcast before that um because uh when i was a kid i used to stutter so badly that i couldn't talk i mean i basically was the kid that everyone was afraid to be called on class i was you know made fun of mercilessly i uh you know had so much went through so much years of speech therapy so just the idea, even as an adult, as, as I got over it, just the idea that I could ever do something that's a podcast where people would actually want to listen to me speak was a terrifying prospect and one that I thought would never be possible. To have this work out as well as it has, I think we ended up with like something like 250,000 listeners this past week, which is just amazing. 
and uh, for have so many people that found some enjoyment out of it uh, has been you know extremely meaningful. And I just want to you know th- thank you, Darren, and thanks EW to, for taking a chance on this, and thanks to everybody who listened and who left comments and who tweeted us and who recommended it to friends. I don't think this will be uh, my last podcast. I think I'm going to do something else. I'm I'm not sure what that is yet, but uh, stay tuned. Shout out to speech therapists, by the way, James. Shout out to speech therapists. I also was a child stutterer who literally was afraid to speak in class because I could not form a full sentence. Don't take my heartwarming story for yourself. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just saying, if there are any speech therapists out there, you are truly doing God's work. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know what is key to speech therapy, James? Courage. Courage is the key. Courage is the key for former stutterers who start doing podcasts. Courage can also be a powerful asset, which is why the all-new Toyota RAV4 Adventure Grade comes with standard dynamic torque vectoring, all-wheel drive, and multi-terrain select, so you have the courage and confidence to roam over almost any terrain. Just visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details. Game of Thrones. We did it. Solved. That's it. The end of Game of Thrones. It's over. And our watch has ended. <laughs>